please join with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for this day of the year where we can be thankful for our fathers, but also, Lord, just so grateful for this time of year with the warm sunshine screams of your creation. And we ask, Lord, that this passage would speak into our hearts with such profundity that it would transform our lives by the proclamation of your word. Thus, thinking your thoughts, Lord, that my lips would be yours, you would bend our wills, and you would take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. As a, a kid of the 70s, you know, I played with Fisher-Price little toys, you know, and I had forts and all kinds of fun things. And along came a movement of toys that kind of overdid those old Fisher-Price toys, and they were called Weebles. <laughs> all right? Re okay, see if you can fill in the blank. Weebles wobble, but... That's right. That's, that's well done, class. And so... You know, it was a fun toy. I didn't get into them, but some of my friends did, and the kids beyond me, they still make them, quite frankly. But you know, it's one thing to be a child playing with a weeble that wobbles. It's a whole other thing to be a person who professes faith in Christ, and they're wobbling in their faith. That's the audience to whom John is writing here in our text today. Because there's Christians in the early church who are wobbling under the influence of the Gnostic gospel, which is no gospel at all, which is a Jesus plus gospel, and are being influenced by it within the church and are even being taken away from Christian churches into Gnostic churches. And can you imagine what's happening with those who remain in the church trying to be faithful? They're wobbling. So John writes this text seeking to reassure all Christians, not just wobbling Christians, how we can apply the word of God to our lives. So I invite you to open up with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3, beginning with verse 11. Because God's word in Genesis reassures them that Abel-like Christians really are in God's family and enjoy the joyful confidence that belongs to all of God's children. We read in verse 19 of 1 John 3, By this we shall know that we are of the truth, and we assure our heart before him. Those are great words. That's why John's writing this particular section for not only wobbly followers of Jesus, but for confident followers of Jesus. And what we see are two different types of faith here. John really has been commenting on Genesis 1 through 3 in the first half of the letter, and he arrives to Genesis 4 here, in explicitly talking about Cain and Abel. And so we have two types of professions of faith. There's Cain-like profession of faith, and there's Abel-like profession of faith. So let's look first at Cain. Verse 12. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And, and why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. 
So don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. See, hate becomes at best indifference or avoidance of another person. The best that an unbelieving person can do in handling hatred toward another is to say, I have no need of you. I have nothing to do with you. But at worst, hatred becomes contempt, disdain, prejudice, and violence. But John's reminding us that it's all ugly, especially when it is within the confessing church. In Ray Steadman's commentary on 1 John, he writes, A skunk by any other name still smells. You can sprinkle the perfume of a finer word or a better label on hate, but it still remains the same ugly thing and still produces the same results in human life. Well said, Pastor Ray. Ray went home to be with the Lord in the 80s. See, Cain committed the first murder because he was angry with God because God didn't accept his sacrifice. Well, that was Cain's fault. He refused to accept God's exhortations on how to do proper sacrifices. So, in other words, Cain was doing the Christian life the way he was going to do the Christian life. He refused to let the Lord exercise sovereignty where only the Lord can. And such anger, maybe perhaps not in murder, but when directed to others, is also an attack on God and a rejection of God's rule in our lives. I would remind us that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 5, verses 21 and 22, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. You ever called anybody an idiot in the church? We're all guilty at one point, probably in our Christian walk, and John is reminding us, Many churches, while being biblical in confession, are some of the most angry people on the face of the planet, right? And what is being revealed here is that when a professing Christian hates like this, the love of God is not abiding in him or her. Now, this does not mean that the person has lost their salvation or ceases to be a Christian, but they certainly are not acting in accordance with being a Christian. And he is no longer living into his true identity. And he or she is being a slave to the world, the flesh, and the devil's influence in their lives. It's kind of like the person who would step out and say, well, you know, those people really aren't our kind of people. Or we need to teach them to be like us. It's like the steakhouse that has the sign out front and says, Cowboy Steakhouse, you go look at the menu and it's a big salad bar. It's false advertising, right? When Jesus' words, we don't love the brethren, one another. And John is reminding us of that. And it can cause others, people's faith within the body to wobble. 
So John's writing this next section to make sure we're standing on the solid rock. He's reassuring us. Again, verse 19 is real, real clear when he says, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. Isn't that beautiful? How can we be reassured? Well, we have Abel-like faith. We're told here the central way, you know you're with God. God's not mad at you. You're in the family of God. Verse 11, for this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. It goes back all the way to creation. We should love one another. Verse 13, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. But we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers and sisters and flock. In verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. The early church did this beautifully in the Greco-Roman Empire. When Christianity first burst onto the scene, it was immediately amazing to the people around them about the love the Christians had for one another. The sign that something is really going on here was the love that the early church exercised both within the community and outside of the community. For example, in Antioch, our Read, Mark, Learn group was studying Acts this spring and we're told that in the book of Acts, Antioch was probably one of the most ethnically diverse cities in the Roman Empire. Perhaps even more ethnically diverse than Rome itself. And what was so interesting about it, while ancient cities had walls around them, Antioch also had walls within them separating the ethnic quarters. There was a section for Syrians, there was a section for Jews, there was a section for Africans, there was a section for Greeks. There were walls between them. Why? Because we're not like those people. They're not like us. We need to teach them to be like us. They're different. Their cultures were different. But Acts 11 tells us something amazing. Acts 11, some Christians from Cyprus and Cyrene who had come to faith in Jerusalem went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks as well as Jews, telling them the good news. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So news reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they couldn't believe it that this church of cross-cultures was forming in Antioch, so they said they sent Barnabas to check it out. We need this to be verified. And he was amazed, and he came back, and he was absolutely amazed. And why is this so amazing? Well, the people were coming to Christ across the wall. Oh, there were still walls there, but the cultural walls were coming down. They were getting together. And we're told in Acts 11 that this was the very first place in history that the followers of Jesus Christ were called Christians. The word means little Christs. Because the ancient world, they couldn't explain it. They'd never seen anything like this before. What, what do we call these people? 
Christian. They'd never seen barriers come down like this before. They'd never seen a people who got a hold of a truth that was so powerful that it relativized all their ethnic pride, relativized all their cultural superiority, so that they were able to look at people of other races, other classes, other genders, and say, my brother, my sister. Nobody had ever seen this, so they called them Christians. And Acts, in fact, Acts 13, a couple chapters later, they appoint uh, some new team of pastors. One was named Simeon, called Niger. He was an African. The word Niger means black. The second was Lucius of Cyrene. That means he was from Tunisia. This person was probably brown-skinned. Uh, you also had Menean, who was of the family of Herod. We're, we're told, well, that means he was royalty. He had means. He'd grown up with Herod. But somehow the Holy Spirit grabbed him and brought him to faith in Christ. As well as there was Barnabas, who was a Cypriot, and Paul was a Jew. Isn't it? They, the world never seen this. What's going on here? That's the reason why John can say, what you have heard, this is what the Holy Spirit intended from the very beginning. And the world is always shocked, and we should not be shocked that the world hates us about it. That's the reason that they say something's going on here. Maybe these people are truly children of God. Maybe God's real. We've never seen any faith like this before. The late Yale historian Kenneth Scott Latourette wrote a great book that the central question was of that book, why did Christianity completely sweep the Roman Empire? Historians that aren't believers really have a hard time explaining that. Latourette says it's very difficult to understand why Christianity won. And so he, he makes a couple set of points. He gives five areas. And on the fourth point, the reason for Christianity's success was that it was totally inclusive. Far more inclusive than any of its competitor religions or any other religion ever had been. It attracted all kinds of races, all kinds of classes. Quote, the pagan deities, for example, were often tied and confined to certain regions and nations. Even in the days of its most active proselytizing activities, Judaism never overcame its racial boundaries because its converts had to become culturally Jewish. Christianity, however, glorified in its appeal to Jew, Gentile, African, and barbarian. I'd like to be called a barbarian. The philosophers to Greece and Rome, on the other hand, appealed to the educated only and could never win the masses. It was one of the charges against Christianity that drew the lowly, the poor, the uneducated multitude, that its essential teaching was so clear and simple to understand that anybody could understand. Yet Christianity also developed a philosophy that converted some of the greatest minds in human history. Christianity was also for both sexes. Men and women were both active in its work. 
while two of its main competitor religions were also almost completely exclusively for men only. Finally, the mystery religions of the day were mainly for the rich, and an initiation into them was very expensive. There was no other religion that took in all the groups and all the strata of society. And Lateret continues, and he says, however, this really doesn't explain why Christianity exceeded and succeeded and took over the Western world. Why did such unprecedented inclusivism appear in Christianity when it not appeared to any religion to date? And a couple paragraphs down, he says, the one tenable explanation of Christianity's inclusiveness was probably its teaching on the uniqueness of its Savior, Jesus Christ. For if Jesus was not a teacher showing the way to salvation, but the Son of God who accomplished salvation, then members of both sexes, all races, the learned, the unlearned, the high and the low, the able and the non-able might all be able to share in the salvation made possible in Jesus Christ our Lord. You see what he's saying? He's saying the same thing as John. He says Christianity swept through because it gave us a truth that broke down the barriers. What is that truth? Christianity taught that God had come into the world in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, and so he accomplished salvation on our behalf. And it doesn't matter what your record is. It doesn't matter what your performance is. It doesn't matter how much money you have or how much money you don't have. It doesn't matter what race you're from. We all need salvation, and we all need it equally. That's the reason why John could say, you heard this from the beginning, you should love one another. That's why it's such an emphasis throughout the letter. That's how you know. We know we've passed from death to life because this love is unparalleled. And this is how we know what love is, as Jesus laid down his life for us. That's how you can be reassured and not be wobbly. You believe that. Standing firm on the love of God in Jesus Christ. The way you know you can be reassured of that is that you get along with people in the family of God. You love people with even, even who you disagree with on certain things. You don't make it a big deal. You don't see that in our world today. Now, if you look around and say, gee, I don't see a lot of churches like this. Well, that's not a problem with the gospel. That's a problem with the church. It doesn't disprove the gospel. It disproves the church and its witness. Because the fact of the matter is, it's a historical fact. And the gospel, when, under, when truly understood, it creates a person of peace and joy and hope as we live in the peaceable kingdom. If you come into my family room, my mother-in-law bought me and Kim some early American art. And this particular Edwin Hicks did a, uh, a piece called The Peaceable Kingdom. And one of the reasons I like Hicks's art, because he's always got a picture of something in Virginia in the art. 
because you know my love of that state. And so here's this kid dressed in 16th century flowery garb, as little boys did back then. And he's got his hand around a lion. And all these animals are around him that are violent animals, talking about the Revelation 20 and 21, the world that is to come. And behind there is the natural bridge outside of Roanoke. That's a picture of what it's like in our kingdom. The kingdom of God is here, Jesus said, and we overlap with the kingdom of this world, and we're called to bring a little heaven to earth, and we can bring a little heaven to earth by the way we love one another. And I can honestly say we're loving one another better than we ever have been, but we've still got room to grow, always. So let's be about it. But I think it's worth us asking questions that we can look at our own hearts. Are we living in accord to what we know about God and our Lord Jesus Christ? Are we being who we are? Are we being who we are? Are we working out the implications of being the sons and daughters of the King by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone? And if we do, I guarantee it, the world will sit up and notice that God loves us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful that you do love us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we believe it. And therefore, Lord, we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit we would love one another in such a way that the world would sit up and take notice. And that we would recognize that we're people of this peaceable kingdom. And we pray, Lord, as we walk in this reality this week, we would see the fruit of the Spirit not only come out of us because it's in us, but the world would take up and notice something's changed about you. And we could get in conversations of come and see. Get in conversations about the reality of your love and grace in Christ. And we pray that as we do so, Lord, you would continue to renew us and bring renewal throughout us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.